the practice that we're doing here is an awakening of the heart. We're calling forth the qualities of loving-kindness, friendliness, gentleness, tenderness, generosity of heart. I really loved the line uh, that Joseph read last night from Galway Canal's poem about to reteach a thing its loveliness. And that seems to capture for me something of this practice. Reteaching a thing its loveliness. Joseph also said last night how we have, for this week, the best job in the world. Know it that we have this opportunity to keep turning our mind towards these quality, qualities, calling them forth. And, you know, especially at this time in the world, it can really resonate as something that is greatly needed. It can seem a very noble cause, worthwhile. And yet, even though we come with the best of intentions, probably all of us, or at least most of us, have discovered that it's a difficult practice, at times very challenging. So tonight, I wanted to speak about uh, five mind states that commonly occur as we do this practice. I think we've probably pretty much mentioned all of these. These are what's commonly called the five hindrances. Five hindrances being desire, aversion, sleepiness, restlessness, and doubt. So these are five states of mind that are really common. And they tend to arise a lot in the first few days of retreat. We may discover that there's one that we're very intimate with, uh, very closely connected to. Or we may discover that we keep having what's called multiple hindrance attacks, where we're (laughs) experiencing all of them. And they all seem closely linked. And at times, it's even hard to discern which one it is that we're actually experiencing. Just to speak a little bit about the hindrances in general first, I mean, the word hindrance itself can have a heavy connotation. And that's not why we speak with them, not to uh, emphasize that, oh, you're bad, look what's coming up, this (laughs) this just proves you can't do it. (laughs) Because that's not it at all. It's really, in speaking about them, helps to depersonalize them, so that we are not thinking that these states, when they arise, are who we really are. You know, this is the sum total of who we are, and right now it's just wanting, and that's, that's what it's always going to be. You know, that um, when we can just learn to recognize them and to know that they are just born out of conditions, And as these conditions change, so too will the hindrances uh, change. And what we learn is to have a wise relationship with these hindrances. We learn with that wise relationship to recognize, to accept, uh, and we can also learn how not to feed these hindrances, how not to exacerbate them or to remain caught caught in them, lost, overwhelmed by them. 
we learn to have a wise relationship with these hindrances, they lose their power over us. They're called hindrances because when they're present, they hinder the mind from deepening concentration because we are so caught and identified in them. They also hinder us from clear seeing that we start to take on these mind states as to be the truth, the way, thing, the, way the world really is. And really it's just a changing mind state. The Buddha once said, the mind itself is intrinsically bright. It is only obscured by visiting defilements or visiting torments of mind. I remember back to when I uh, first sat with Sayadaw Upandita and he asked me what defilements I was experiencing. I didn't even know the meaning of the word. You know, I wasn't so acquainted with uh, that kind of language, so sometimes it, it feels a little bit awkward. But it really is those those states of mind that causes pain, suffering, uh, where, where we're in torment. What's so important about this statement from the Buddha is that it is pointing towards the mind being intrinsically bright and inherent goodness, and, and that these are just visiting forces in the mind. The value of learning to recognize them was once clearly seen in my own experience where I was doing a long retreat and you know, at a certain point in the retreat it was like the practice got really hard and I was really struggling. And at that time I remembered some of my friends who had gone to India and sat with a master there. And the story was that they would sit with this master and then they would have a good laugh with him and they would magically get it. (laughs) From the place of struggle, the getting it seemed um, like I would really like that. (laughs) I didn't know what it was, but I just had this sense that I really wanted it. (laughs) And... So, you know, then my practice seemed so difficult, you know. And so at a certain point after, you know, fantasizing about quitting my practice, going off to India and finding this teacher, seeking him out, um, I decided, okay, what really is my problem? And so I looked to see what was happening in my experience. What I saw was desire, aversion, sleepiness, restlessness, and doubt. I don't know why it was a surprise, <laughs> but it was. No, and, but then once I could see it, it was like, oh, it's just the hindrances. It doesn't mean I'm intrinsically a bad person. I'm forever doomed to a life of suffering. I need deep therapy for the rest of my life. It was just visiting forces in the mind. So the recognition being extremely important. In learning to not judge these states, it's also helpful to look at practice as being the letting go of that which perpetuates 
suffering and the inclining the mind towards that which alleviates suffering. It takes it out of being a moralistic judgment. And so what we discover is that when we're identified or attached to these hindrances, it perpetuates suffering. So sometimes when we really deeply understand that, we will find that just by recognizing desire in the mind, there's a letting go that happens. We know to uh, pursue that leads to further suffering. And it's just really practical. Nothing mystical about it. You know, it's like just learning to live in a really skillful way. So the first of the hindrances, desire, it's the wanting mind, craving, clinging, attachment. This desire can arise through experiences through any of the sense doors. You know, it can be desire for pleasant sights, sounds, pleasant mind states. It can be desire for anything. (laughs) And we really find that the wanting mind is quite relentless. That as we go through the day, we may be experiencing one desire after another desire after another desire. And we tend to, in the moment where desire is present, there's the wanting or thinking that something else is needed in order to be happy. Or there's the clinging to something which in one moment brought us happiness. And we think we need to hang on to that experience in order to be happy we tend to get enchanted by the objects of our desire. We get mesmerized by them. Winnie the Pooh had some understanding of this. He said, although eating honey was a very good thing to do, there was a moment just before you begin to eat that is even better than when you do. (laughs) And this is where we're really captivated by the object of our desire. Last night, Joseph spoke about one way that we commonly experience desire when we do metta practice, one that kind of comes with the doing of this practice, and that's the near enemy. That's where our metta is self-referencing, or where maybe where we're bargaining Um, we have some investment in doing metta or investment in offering it to someone so that we can get something in return. It's where there's conditions to our love. It's not simply freely offered, wanting someone to love us in return thinking that people need to be worthy of our love. And often we don't realize how conditional our love is until somebody does something that we don't like. And then we can immediately be faced with the wanting to retract or pull away our love, as if they are unworthy and we um, no longer 
are inclusive of that person. We also experience the near enemy when we get sentimental in the practice. It's where there, it's more of an emotional feeling that has a soft, fuzzy glow to it, rather than that friendliness or generosity of heart. That sentimentality um, can be known, just if we remember back to how it was when maybe we first fell in love with somebody, and that how that person became just the most wonderful being in the world, and we would not look at that person in their totality. That, um, you know, it wasn't just a case of seeing the goodness in them, but really um, kind of expanding and renowned, giving this person the full glow of how wonderful they were for what we could appreciate about them. And we become quite emotional and, in many ways, delusional around it. We're we're not seeing clearly. Sentimentality has a piece of delusion with it. Ajahn Sumedho, who is... um, the abbot of the Amravati Sangha in England says about metta, metta is not blinding. It means that you are willing to admit weaknesses, faults within your own experience of life, without making it into anything. It's clarity. The mind is clear, radiant, bright, and reflective, rather than just a pink cloud that we blot out every ugly thing with. That's not metta. That's projecting a pink cloud from your mind. So with metta, we can be inclusive. Yes, we do call, f- you know, turn the mind towards the goodness, but we can accept things in their totality. Sometimes when we do metta practice, we can start to feel really discouraged because we so often come in contact with this near enemy. And we start to think, wow, everything's just filled with this attachment. But the seeing of it is so important. It helps to erode or be run by this habit of desire or attachment. The Dalai Lama once said, My call for a spiritual revolution is thus not a call for a religious revolution, nor is it a reference to a way of life that is somehow otherworldly, still less something magical or mysterious. Rather, it is a call for a radical reorientation away from our habitual preoccupation with self. It is a call to turn towards the wider community of beings with whom we are connected to and, and for conduct that recognizes others' interests alongside our own. When the near enemy is present, we have that self-referencing view. And yet, what meta, the potential of meta practice is that radical reorientation 
away from our habitual preoccupation with self so that our metta can be inclusive. The ways that we experience metta or we experience desire in a metta course are not limited to the near enemy. It's any moment where we're wanting something. Now, as we sit here and we want, um, we want, we're really hoping that lunch is going to be really tasty. You know, it will give us some reprieve from uh, the practice. We're wanting to feel metta itself is a form of desire. Habits in our life are often of trying to get what we want so the desire will go away. This leads to a life of addiction and a life of craving intensity, where we're always looking for the next high. Sometimes when we come to the practice, we do it in just the same way where you know we're craving those moments where we really feel strong metta or we might be craving some difficulty because then we really feel like we're working you know we've got something to hook our teeth into and that's where we'll see that the practice is really working and with that we can fail to see the moments where metta is just simple where it's that friendly offering where it's that steadiness of heart and mind that can stay present when things are really good and when things are not so good. In looking to, beginning to notice desire in our practice, sometimes we might notice it um, through the tone of our noting, where there's a real wanting, may I, um, or, you know, where there's the tone of wanting someone to receive it. We might also notice it when there's an energetic sense of leaning into the uh, phrases. Sometimes we might find that we're frantically looking for the person who's going to give us the best experience. In working with desire, to notice it when it's present, to see if in the noticing there's the releasing, the letting go. Sometimes the desire may be so strong that we need to open to the force of desire itself, turning the attention uh, into the experience of wanting, the craving so that we're not so caught up in the object of our desire. Sometimes we need to practice restraint or renunciation because this force can be so tantalizing. You know, and that could be in the form of it could be we've noticed that every time we get up for a walking meditation, we think that first we need to have a cup of tea. The desire for tea becomes really strong. So in practicing restraint, it could be something as simple as not going 
to walk in the dining hall every time. No giving support to the mind. So noticing that the, that desire is strong, and then choosing renunciation, restraint, and giving support to that through finding another place to walk. It could be that as we're sitting here, uh, we're experiencing desire in the form of a quite inviting fantasy about someone else who is sitting here. You know, it's common that we will have what's called the Pasna romance, or where we just really start to um, create some projection of this being a really wonderful person, and we're enchanted by that person. And so we notice we start walking where they're going to be. So, you know, we can just you know, fuel that fantasy a little bit. So what we might do in the noticing of the pull towards that desire is just choosing to walk somewhere else so that we're not continually having to work with that desire. Just giving some support so it's not the most prevalent experience throughout the day. So desire, attachment, wanting, craving, clinging, the first of the hindrances also the near enemy. So a force that we need to just accept as a part of the practice. It will arise. And then to work skillfully with it. The second of the hindrances being aversion. This can be in the form of hatred, anger, ill will. It can also surprising to some of us, be experienced as fear. In Buddhist psychology, aversion and fear are said to be the same state. They are the energy where we don't want experience. Sometimes even so strongly we want to annihilate the experience. With aversion where it moves into anger, there may be the lashing out energy. Where with fear, it's more of an internal Um, energy where we might find that we become frozen, unable to respond. And yet it's rooted in aversion. Aversion is what's called the far enemy of practice, of loving-kindness practice. It's the opposite. It tends to be a lot easier to see than the near enemy because when it arises we know that we're suffering. So it's easier to detect. Sometimes it seems surprising that when we do this practice where you know, the intention is good, um, turning our mind towards loving-kindness, surprised that a lot of anger and aversion can arise. We may have noticed that we're working with someone whom is quite beloved to us, either our benefactor or dear friend, and that we keep getting caught in really petty things that they may have done or said that we don't like. And this anger or aversion arises. So it's really kind of like, why? Why does this happen? One of the images that uh, can be 
really helpful in just the understanding, you know, a picture way of understanding what happens is when we have the image of there being a fiery hot iron rod and then as cold water is splashed on it, which will eventually cool this rod, in the first kind of touching of that, there's this whoosh, this um, kind of fog, energy that arises. And it's really similar to the practice that our metta is the balm that will cool the flame of aversion. But as we put the balm on that anger or aversion, we experience that whoosh before it's cooled. You know that there's an impact that happens. So it really is if when we experience this anger or aversion, not to get caught in the judgment that the practice isn't working. Because it is just a part of this practice. And I think it has been said that this is a purification practice. And that means that all that obstructs metta will arise. We will begin to see that which is binding our hearts. We will come in contact with the anger and aversion, which is the opposite of metta. But as we apply this balm, it does have the cooling effect. It is a turning away from what can be a deeply habituated response of anger or aversion. Joseph mentioned how we can have this tendency to just see all of that which we don't like about people. Um, And it can very quickly jump to aversive tendencies. And Buddha gave this practice as an antidote to aversion, as an antidote to fear. I've always enjoyed the the story about how this practice was first given. And it happened that there was a group of monks that the Buddha sent off to a certain uh, part of the forest to practice. When they arrived in uh, this forest, they discovered that the forest was inhabited by tree spirits. And these tree spirits didn't like the fact that these monks came and practiced in their forest. And so they wanted to scare them off. And you know, they created all these really fearful images and horrible smells in an attempt to get rid of these monks. And it worked. The monks went away. They were quite fearful of what was happening. And so they went back to the Buddha to ask him to send them for them to be able to go to another place to practice. But the Buddha said no, that they should go back to where they had been practicing and he would give them what all that they needed in order to protect themselves. He gave them the practice of loving-kindness. The story goes that they went back to that same forest where there was these tree spirits and they began to practice loving-kindness. And it's said that the tree spirits became so happy that they wanted the monks to remain there. They encouraged them to stay, and they wanted to serve the monks in their being there. 
it may be that we don't we totally relate to tree spirits and um, to some of the details of the story. But I know from my own experience that this is a practice that really helps if we are a person drawn or you know, habitually going into aversion or fear. I remember the first time that I did metta intensively. I did it here at IMS. And I was astounded at the sense of safety that I began to feel. It really helped to bring that balance in the mind where you know, I could greet experience, where I wasn't just falling into this deeply habituated, fearful way of responding to experience. And I know I've experimented many times when I've been in fearful situations to help myself greet that moment. You know, not to not so that I become really naive and think, oh, you know, I can be um, present in really horrible circumstances where maybe it's wise to remove oneself, but to know that I can greet any type of experience. Uh, with that friendliness, that care, that kindness. Judgment being a form of aversion, where we become really dismissive of people. As we sit here, how many judgments have we had? It's phenomenal that we judge people for the way they sit, the way they walk, you know, if we hear them talk, what they say. It's you know, just something that we tend to do over and over in our experience. And you know, I really found for myself how this practice helps to erode this tendency. I was practicing in Burma and hit this uh, space where judgment was really what was up. And it was strong. I reported it to my teacher, Sayadaw Ujanaka, and at that time I'd been practicing insight meditation. And so he told me to switch to metta, or loving-kindness practice. So I made the switch, and as I was practicing, uh, I, when I was walking outside, and you know, as the monastery there was really kind of crowded and tight, and most people were doing insight meditation and walking really, really slowly, I went to a less congested area of the monastery, which happened to be right outside the toilets. So as I was walking there, you know, I discovered that all kinds of people use the toilets. And, you know, they were, <laughs> they were people practicing, they were the cooks, the helpers, they were happy people, sad people, lonely people. Uh, just every possible type of person would eventually use the toilet. And so my practice at that time was really just offering metta to whoever came by. And it took me out of judging everyone for whether they were worthy, whether um, they were the right kind of person to be working with, but just to offer to everyone. And it came as such a great relief. It helped to you know, bring about that ease, that friendly quality of mind where we're not caught in the judging. 
because anger is the far enemy, the opposite, and just is a part of what happens in the practice, it's really important that we learn to work skillfully with it. So we're working with someone, we discover that anger arises, aversion, whether it's to ourself, to another being. First, just recognizing that the anger is present. Sometimes we will find that we can recognize it, let go. It leads to more suffering. Other times we may find that we can, um, in the recognition or just in seeing the anger or aversion, we will skillfully decide to go back where it's easier, where we're not being triggered by that anger or aversion. So working in the easiest way possible at that time. And that will help us to reconnect with what metta is. And then we can go back where it's more difficult. Sometimes it's a little bit more challenging to detect, and we might notice it through how we're offering the phrases. You know, where... um, it might have the sense of saying a phrase and saying it in a very unmetta-like way, where we're trying to torture somebody with our metta. <laughs> or whether it um, has that edge of, you know, get it. Why don't you receive this? So sometimes listening to the tone of the phrases will really help us to see if there's that anger or aversion present. Sometimes as we notice the anger or aversion, we'll find that we're really caught in the story. You know, it could be strong resentment arising. And you know, we don't have the capacity in that moment to forgive. We may have to open to it with mindfulness to temporarily let go of the phrases and to experience the anger directly. Experience it in the body. See what it feels like. Feeling the sensations, how they change, how they move, the heat, energy, um, tightness, contraction. Then we get pulled into the story just noticing that. Noticing that and seeing if we can then come back into the actual experience, the heat, the volatility in the mind, but really keep connecting with the experience. And then, as it dissipates, we can once again return to the metta practice. Something else to remember about the arising of aversion or anger um, is that as we do this practice and we're developing concentration, we can get what's called yogi mind. And this is where little things happen during the day, where maybe our neighbor starts to squirm, or maybe someone is breathing really loudly, or maybe we just can't stand the look of somebody's smile on their face. And our reaction to what gets really blown up it becomes really big, amplified. And we tend to exaggerate things in our own minds. 
And this is just something that happens in practice. It's called yogi mind. Um, The concentration itself has a way of making things appear bigger. So just to know if this is starting to happen to you, where you find that you're just really quite reactive to these simple little things, that it just happens. And not to take it too seriously, not to buy into the story of it, but to see if we can just let it go. No, it's not a big deal. See if we can hold it lightly if we can't let it go. See if we can meet it with friendliness. So these first two hindrances can be experienced really strongly in our metta practice, being the near and the far enemies, desire and aversion, we discover that they have a lot of tenacity, that they keep reoccurring. And so we learn to cultivate a friendly relationship with them. Sometimes that friendly relationship will just be having to bow to them, just to know, oh, here is my good friend aversion again. No, softening, accepting, This is our momentary experience, dealing with it as wisely as we can, without exacerbating or fueling. The third hindrance is that of sleepiness. Sometimes it's called sloth and torpor. where there's dullness, lack of energy, a listlessness, where the mind is foggy. Living in Australia, which is something I did for a number of years in my life, um, there's an animal called the koala. And the koala looks like a really cute little cuddly bear. I had heard that the koala was actually a very sleepy animal. And then one time when I was doing a retreat, I discovered something of the koala and this habit. I was sitting outside, and um, koalas are not so common, and so it's quite an event when one actually sees one, because they're a very timid creature too. Anyhow, there was this koala, and so I started watching it. And the koala was climbing a tree, And it would put one arm up, pull itself up, put another arm, pull itself up, put another arm, pull itself up. And then, as it put its arm up, it just conked over and fell asleep right there. In that moment, it struck me as how I often do my practice. (laughs) That there can be um, the being there, you know, we're working with metta, uh, feeling quite present to it, and then suddenly, We're gone. We're in this fog, in this dreamlike state. And, you know, as we have already said, it's really common in these first few days of practice. It arises out of conditions of our life. You know, we may have been really busy before we came, doing a lot of things. We come, and there's a level of tiredness that we start to get in contact with. It starts to surface. 
there's an unwinding process that begins to happen. And out of that, we come in contact with this often very unwieldy state where we are just thrown about by this sleepiness. It also can come about because there isn't so much stimulus as we're used to. And if we're used to having that intensity that I spoke of earlier uh, as a way of keeping ourselves awake, then suddenly it's like, whoa, the the phrase has become monotonous, tiring, and boom, we just fall asleep. Again, it's wisely relating to sleepiness when it's present, remembering it's a part of our settling in, uh, to notice if in relation to the sleepiness we are experiencing anger or aversion. No, we don't want it. We want to get rid of it. And that becomes even more tiring. Sometimes it's like we really try to battle the sleepiness. We try harder and we become even more sleepy. So it, it calls us to investigate how we're doing the practice. As I think it was Sharon mentioned, that when sleepiness is present, we can really work with just the aiming of the mind. You know, so we might pick one aspect of you know, the, the visual image or felt sense of the person we're working with, the meaning of the phrases, or the offering. And we just really aim the mind with one of these aspects of experience. You know, in that way, we are harnessing all of the energy that is available. We are unifying the mind and bringing a little bit more energy into the practice. Because when sleepiness is present, energy level is down. So finding how we can skillfully bring that more into balance. Sometimes we find we get sleepy when difficulties start to arise. So it could be that we get sleepy as um, someone becomes more difficult to work with. Then again, we could go back and work where it's easier. We've heard some of the simple ways of working with sleepiness, where we open the eyes. You know, I've discovered that in opening the eyes, if I keep them downcast, it's just too close, you know, too close to falling asleep. So I found it really helpful to actually raise the level of the gaze when sleepiness is there. You know, we can simply just straighten our posture. That helps to, again, arouse energy. To stand up to walk outside in walking periods, to walk quickly. It can also happen that sleepiness comes about as concentration starts to deepen. And what we might find in metta practice is the practice becomes quite pleasant but mushy. You know, and and we're sending this phrase out but it kind of just has no sense of connection with where it's going. Um, And so what can be helpful is, again, that right aiming of bringing a little bit more precision into 
the offering of the phrases or the meaning of the phrases. Something else around sleepiness that we might want to take notice of is that it is exacerbated by overeating. And I don't know how the 215 sit has been for you, but it's commonly a time when we fall asleep. And so just to notice at mealtimes if you're eating a lot, and you might just try cutting back a bit, you know, that we aren't exerting ourselves a lot physically, and the body might not need so much food. So just to notice if we might be overeating. Sometimes we need to notice with um, this hindrance where there is a lethargy, where we have a lack of interest. And this is something that you know we experience in our lives and start listlessly moving through life. We find we can't apply our energy and can keep us caught in quite a woeful state. So if we notice that there's just no vitality, that we don't have much interest in the practice, we might need to stop and reflect on why it is that we do this practice, what it is that motivates us, what it is that inspires us, using this as a way to call forth more energy. We can be creative in how we work with sleepiness. People have found many different ways of working with it. I heard of one woman who was experiencing it a lot and would go and sit in front of a tree. And every time that she fell asleep, her head would hit the tree and it would wake (laughs) her up. (laughs) Hoganson, a Zen master that I uh, have sat with, He once talked about how he was experiencing a lot of sleepiness in his practice. And so he decided that he would go and sit on top of the temple roof. And, you know, it was a steeply pitched roof. And it had just this thin beam that ran down the center of it. And so he said he went up and he sat there. He sat there through the night. Or what he said was he discovered in the morning (laughs) that he was actually laying down on top of the beam. (laughs) I don't really recommend going and sitting up on the roof as a means of staying awake. But that, you know, we can be creative in how we call forth that sense of urgency or or call forth bringing a wakeful presence to um, our practice. And so being playful with it, holding the sleepiness lightly, and then being creative. The fourth hindrance is that of restlessness. And restlessness happens when, you know, we're in very, op- it's like opposite to sleepiness. It's where there's an overabundance of energy. 
No, and this can be energy in the mind where we might find that we're obsessively planning the future or it might be that we find that we're replaying old tapes over and over again. As we work with different people, there are you know, memories surfacing all the time, and that's a part of practice, but that we find that we get really caught up in these memories in a way of maybe experiencing a lot of guilt, that we um, start judging ourselves and getting entwined in these memories. Or we might experience it on the physical level, where there's just so much energy in the body that we feel like we're going to explode. And concentration really does call up a lot of energy. So at times, we will experience this as being quite unpleasant. Uh, And so learning to recognize restlessness when it arises and finding ways to work with it. The recognition with restlessness can sometimes be hard to detect. You know, you sit down and you just start looking for the perfect posture, like the first instruction, sit comfortably. And so we just start making all these subtle little adjustments and we become this really kind of moving phenomena. And then you know, we, st- we pick somebody to begin working with, and then, oh, but not quite right. So we move on to another person, and another person, and another person. And then we start, aud- re- you know, we're really auditioning people. And then um, <laughs> we start thinking, oh, that phrase isn't quite right. You know, we start really looking for the perfect phrase. And then we might suddenly go, oh, restlessness. No, it's, it's where the mind's not able to connect and sustain the attention. And so as a result, it's moving moment, moment by moment. Because restlessness is the opposite to um, when concentration or when sleepiness is present, like there's this overabundance of energy we can work with it by strengthening the factor of concentration. So in doing this, it helps to simplify the practice, to uh, be working in a really easy way. And so we might go back to our easiest person, and we just stay steady with it. And it will be that we get lost, we forget, the mind jumps to something else, but we just keep coming back. And we keep that intention to come back really strong. If we can stay steady right there, concentration will start to deepen again. There will start to become more balance in the mind. Sometimes we'll find that when the experience is really strong, that that feels like too much. It's like trying to put a huge amount of energy into a really tiny opening. So we might have to work differently. We might have to give the mind a really big paddock. Sometimes with restlessness, I have found it helpful doing it to all beings. 
that that can just be huge, boundless. You know, it has no, no limit to it. And so it's, you know, putting that huge energy into a boundless space. When we're experiencing it uh, strongly and don't feel like we can continue to work with it from the place of metta, we can open to it with mindfulness again. And we can let the attention be very vast, spacious. The, the sensations, if we're experiencing it in the physical body, can be arise, be known, but they're happening in a big field of awareness where we're aware of other experiences. One aspect of experience that tends to be help, helpful with restlessness is l- opening to hearing, just resting in that spaciousness. So we cultivate that friendly, caring way of being with the restlessness by honoring and accepting that that's what's happening in the moment. Opening to it, allowing it to be a part of our experience, and then as we find a balance with that, we can return to the metta practice. Sometimes when restlessness is strong, we can walk outside, walk in nature, and just allowing ourselves to be touched by the simplicity. It can be refreshing to the mind. The last of the hindrances is doubt. And I'm feeling kind of um, <laughs> a little bit remorse at the moment because this is a hindrance that is really worthy of a lot of attention and the clock is ticking. <laughs> um, and I know this is a hard night to sit longer. I, I thought tonight's talk was actually going to be quite short. <laughs> My apologies. But I do want to give some emphasis to this hindrance because it will uh, really stop us in our practice if we don't recognize it. And it is often difficult to see because when doubt is present in the mind, we really believe it to be true. We're very much identified. It becomes our view. Today we may have experienced doubt in the form of this practice is too hard. This practice isn't for me. This isn't the right practice for me. They aren't teaching this practice right. What can be the possible good of this practice? I think this practice is really for the feel-good types. (laughs) It's where we start to doubt the power of the practice, the practice itself, the teachings, and we move into a state of separation with it. There can be a healthy form of doubt that helps us to come close to our experience where we don't know, so we inquire. We come close. But the kind of doubt when it's a hindrance is where we might find ourselves endlessly speculating. And that speculating isn't allowing us to connect. 
It isn't allowing us to really try to connect with this experience, to really undertake this practice, to see what benefit might be in this practice. One of the things that was first told to me when I was experiencing doubt was just to treat this as a scientific experiment. You know, we run into the uh, speculative doubt when we think that we need to believe something. But if we can just use this time to experiment, to really see what the potential benefit of this practice might be, it will help us to stay steady with doubt. But we will need to recognize the voice of doubt. It will be that if it's our first retreat of doing metta practice, that we will need some degree of faith in order to work with this doubt. Because we don't know of the result of the practice. We don't know experientially of the benefit. So it requires us to take a risk, to have courage. We can support that faith by um, remembering back to what our motivations were in coming here and having faith in those motivations. Hearing what does resonate with our hearts and minds and you know, just giving it the chance. So for the period of the retreat, just undertaking to give it a chance. And at the end, then we can evaluate. And, you know, I've noticed many times that we don't experience that immediate benefit from doing the metta. On my last retreat, I had a moment where, to me, it was as if all of the fruits of my metta practice came home. And it was when I'd gone through a really difficult time, when I'd felt um, deeply challenged, And during that time, what I noticed was that there was a willingness to be with the difficulty. There was just looking to see what's the skillful way of being with this. And the the period of difficulty lasted for quite some time. And then at the end of it, it was like the water started to calm again. And I had the thought, wow, you're a good good friend to have. And I think that's what our metta practice can really help us to do, is to stay friendly to ourselves in those times of difficulty, in those times of need. And so as we sit here, we plant those seeds of loving kindness without looking in each moment to see if they've ripened. We rest in the planting of a wholesome seed in this moment. learning to recognize all of these hindrances as they arise in our experience, abandoning them as we can. When they persist, learning to work skillfully with them. This will help us to cultivate a friendly relationship to all that arises in our hearts and mind 
through all kinds of difficulties and challenges that we meet in our lives. If we can learn to work with these hindrances, we won't be derailed each time that they arise, but we use it as another opportunity of letting go. So let's just sit for a moment. Settling back into our bodies, bringing a kind and caring attention to this experience. There was a suggestion made by someone earlier today that we take a moment each day to dedicate the fruits of our practice or this wholesome energy that arises from our practice to be of benefit in bringing world peace, this view of loving kindness into this world. So offering freely this wholesome force that arises from our practice. To be of benefit for all beings in this struggling world so that we may live in peace and harmony. Thank you for your patience. This is a way of cultivating loving-kindness or an aspect of it. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.